So we'll talk about the Shrine of Remembrance. Um, and we're going to talk specifically going back now to 1971. So what we really want you to do is stand here and imagine you're standing here. It's just before Anzac Day, 1971. And lo and behold... During the Vietnam War, the memorial became a popular protest site for anti-war demonstrators. And so um, the shrine on this particular Anzac Day was decorated with the word peace, painted in three-foot white letters on the pillars of the portico. And then four peace signs or ban the bomb signs were also painted in white on the pillar supports beside the steps. And uh, the, the anecdote that we have heard is that despite restoration and cleaning, the peace slogan remained faintly visible for the, over 20 years. I don't know. I don't. I can't imagine anyone being allowed to do that now. There's probably like across the clock security. But well, allegedly the security guards were accosted. Oh, as part of the application of the peace sign. So, um, so yeah, there was that. There was a scuffle. I mean, it's interesting to think because the Anzac Day actually like boosted in popularity around the Howard years. It was actually on decline after the Vietnam War. So people didn't want to um, celebrate war in the way that we do now. It's actually in very recent history that even young people are getting involved in um, Anzac Day ceremonies. But I think, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting also thinking about community values changing over time as well. And recently Tony Birch, in the same article in Overland, also talked about another layer that sits with the, with the Shrine of Remembrance. And this is it during 1927 when the foundations for the shrine uh, were being excavated and the skeletal remains of an Indigenous person were found buried at the site. And the remains were quickly disposed of and the monument proceeded unabated. And that's a direct quote from Tony Birch's article. So Francesco Vitelli, he's a freelance architect. Francesco is quoted by Tony Birch in the article. Francesco suggests that this event signifies that since its beginning, the shrine as a memory object displaced and replaced another memory and that the white man's monumental, epic, sacred site was already someone else's sacred site. So how does a society dependent on the conservation of epic memory cope with the collective secrets it holds in storage. And Tony would argue, so I would argue, that as with the speedy disposal of an indigenous body at the site of a proposed national monument, the colonial state must engage in a continuous process of erasure. So we're going to turn around now and we're going to look back in the other direction to see what is the portrait or barrack building. And this was designed by Ashton Raggick McDougall, otherwise known as ARM, and it it's kind of revealed in 2015. And this is a portrait of Wurundjeri Woiwurrung, activist, artist and knowledge holder, Burick, known to settlers as William Barrick. And Grocon CEO, Carolyn Viney describes that the idea stemmed from our desire to do something very meaningful in the context of the project's location opposite to the Shrine of Remembrance. But there's lots to say about this work. One of the things that were raised at the time, okay, this is quite extraordinary. I mean, I find it kind of semi-magic turning my back on the Shrine of Remembrance and looking towards Barak, and I think 
you know, this, there is something kind of profound about that moment. But also, um, you know, people pointed out when it was revealed, it was like this association between 530 luxury apartments and the lifelong dedication of William Barrack and, and his, you know, Aboriginal people, you know, over the struggle of land. Like, you've got, like, a land rights activist <laughs> plastered all over expensive apartments. It's, there's an irony there that I think maybe had been lost on the architects. Yeah, and also there was mentioned during the time that the, actually the William Barrack's face was not uh, featured in the sales guide for these luxury apartments. So it was not a selling point. Yeah, so I went to a great talk with Linda Kennedy, um, who is a uh, Yulin designer, um, so Aboriginal uh, designer that's based in the south coast of New South Wales. And she was on a panel with Jeeva Greenaway and also uh, with Ashen Raggett McDougall. And she really took them to task as a fellow designer and kind of gave them a crit, which is kind of unheard of uh, for a young female designer to take on some of our iconic great architects of this city. And she questioned whether this piece of architecture could have looked beyond the representation of Aboriginal cultures and history and instead engage in Indigenous ways of knowing and doing as primary for the design principles. And that, as someone who has a background in architecture and design, it's kind of like 101 to do that. And I suppose from my perspective as working within the City of Melbourne for a period of time, it was always front of mind for me that the hodl grid, so just the hodl grid itself, there is not one significant permanent work, and I'm talking about a large scale commission here, there's small scale ones but really large ones, by an Aboriginal artist or about Aboriginal people within the grid. And I think that opens up some really serious questions about our city. Like, yeah, where are our monuments placed and, yeah, what, what's being privileged in the city? Um, yeah. Certainly we have a lot of works along Birrarung Ma and in, in terms of up the top with uh, the Tanaminaway Malpohina uh, work, but they all sit on the edges of the grid. So it's kind of like they sit beyond and outside what is seen as the significant grid, the formal colonial grid um, that, that makes up the city. So this concludes our walk, exploring the power of artistic and community action in questioning some of the gaps and silences in our public realm, where difficult histories and social issues can be confronted. Many thanks to guest Amy Spears for her insights, M Pavilion for hosting the Public Art Field Guide, Sophie Gleason for audio production and RMIT School of Design for their technical support. <laughs>